Welcome to Antitrust Code by Concurrences. Concurrences is the leading antitrust database, with over 30,000 articles on competition law. Concurrences is also the largest network of antitrust experts, with lawyers, economists, enforcers, and academics in 85 countries. By listening to this podcast, you will learn the fundamentals of competition law and hear about the latest antitrust news, thanks to our guests, the best experts in the antitrust world. So, uh, welcome to the, um, this antitrust podcast at the Concurrence uh, event in Palo Alto in 2024. I'm Neil Dryden, co-head of Compass Lexicon EMEA, and I'm joined by David Tudor, who holds the position of Group General Counsel at NASPERS and Process. Um, welcome, David. Um, Thank you very much, Neil. I'd just like to start the discussion because I think the, the group that you are general counsel of is, is a kind of interesting mm-hmm. structure and different from some of the sort of single big tech companies that we've heard from earlier today. If you could just give us a bit of a sense of the dimension of the dimensions of the group that you're responsible for. Sure, happy to do that. I mean, we are a large tech investor. We both own and op- operate businesses, um, generally e-commerce platform businesses. So we invest in food delivery businesses, payments and fintech businesses, edtech businesses, online classifieds businesses. Um, and we invest in a, an array of different countries, generally ca- countries that r- represent opportunities for higher growth. So um, we, have a, we have a significant uh, stake in Tencent in China. Uh, we invest in India. That's our largest capital destination outside of China. Um, South Africa, we have we have we have significant businesses there, and then we have um, businesses in in South America, and in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Um, so that, that's the sort of range of geographies that we cover. We're also looking increasingly at Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, so if you c- if you combine the number of different product markets that you're in and the number yeah. of different geographic markets that you're in, it seems yeah. to me that your challenge is greater than almost a- you know anybody else that we've <laughs> heard, heard heard from today. So how do you with that just array yeah. of exposure to competition yeah. issues? Um, and all sorts of different business models. You mentioned your marketplaces, mm. and etc. How do you how do you manage the competition issues of, of, of something of that dimensionality? I think you've got to get the people who are the competition experts need to be close to the business. Mm. So most of the businesses, as they grow, some of them start off as in sort of uh, tackling incumbent businesses. Um, maybe competition is not right at the forefront of yeah. of of. of um, what they're thinking about as they grow, but as, as they grow and as they take increasingly important positions in their particular uh, markets, um, the need for competition compliance becomes more acute. They're much more visible businesses. Um, and we then try to ensure that the businesses have competition experts mm. sitting close t- to the business. But then I think at a group level, it's um, I have a, a, a digital regulatory team, which includes somebody who looks after competition mm-hmm. in, the, in that team. And she pulls together all of those different experts who sit in the various businesses that they talk to each other. So that we, we, we try to make sure that as competition authorities' uh, thinking evolves, mm-hmm. that we, we see that across the various businesses that we're in. If we understand that one authority is thinking about, say, food delivery in a particular way, yeah. then in the same way that the competition authorities are talking to each other, we try to make sure that our businesses talk to each other and understand the evolution of the competition thinking. So it's increasing competition importance in the business as the business grows, but then also a, um, uh, a knowledge sharing across yep. our various businesses. And is it a challenge for, uh, for you to uh, 
control what comes to the center, as it were, for your attention versus what stays kind of distributed within the businesses? I think you can sort of draw a distinction between M&A. So we generally run M&A on a centralized mm -hmm. basis. So I think we've been doing M&A for a long time. It's, it's a well-developed muscle on notification, on the way we, um, we, we approach an M&A transaction from a competition perspective I'm comfortable that I that at the center we see all of those that are of any significance and that we, we ensure that they're dealt with appropriately from a competition risk management perspective, that there's no gun jumping and that we, we, we factor competition into the decision making. I think where I'm more reliant on the competition experts in the business is is for those 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 issues that are um, that the business faces on a day to day basis. Certainly the bigger things that they face like uh, Market inquiries or um, competition litigation, I will see because of our reporting system that ensures that they get mm. to me. So I'm, I, I, it's a balance. The larger things comes to me. The larger things come to me that maybe the, the, the more conduct related stuff is managed within the business itself, yep. but with the oversight from my team. Yep. It's very, it's very interesting the way you describe mm. it because you know, my, my initial assumption mm. had been. That with all these different businesses mm. in different product markets yeah. in different countries, it was going to yeah. be a much more challenging job, yeah. in many ways, than for others in your position. But there are some benefits as well. It seems yeah. to me because you you almost get a, you get learnings from other markets or other countries that might be a leading indicator of what to expect in a in a in a in a different product yeah. market or a different country, but where the economic fundamentals are the same. Because, for example, it's a two-sided market. Yes. That 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 that's that 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 is absolutely true. The um, if you have a food delivery business in Brazil and you have food delivery business in India, yeah. the, the the concerns the regulator may may be similar. They may mm -hmm. be different, but the we we can at least share the between those two businesses how they're approaching the competition challenges that they have. And if there's some overlap, then certainly we can learn from those. Yes. Um, and it also could be a useful source of evidence, I suppose, which is you, uh, you know, one country can be a natural experiment for, for some proposition in another country. So there's learnings of that nature. There are learnings of that nature as okay. well. Um, so we've he heard quite a lot today about the idea that um, maybe there was under-enforcement mm. in, di in digital markets. We've talked about two-sided platforms mm. and that there's a recognition perhaps that there's a need for more intervention and that there actually is now more intervention and that's in the form of ex-ante regulation like the DMA and um, more intervention into mm. digital mergers in dynamic markets. So I just wonder from, a, from your perspective sitting across all of these mm. businesses, um, do you agree at all with the premise that there was under enforcement and do you in practice perceive the greater degree of intervention um, you know, acro across your portfolio? That's a f fantastically good and difficult question to answer. Um, <coughs> I think historically, yes, we've seen some of our businesses that have been damaged by dominant players. And although I believe the framework was there for enforcement, for one reason or another, that enforcement didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And that abuse of a dominant position was, al was effectively allowed to continue. I think there was a timing issue. I don't think that the framework was wrong. I think that there was a an absence of enforcement or an enforcement too slow, too slow, too, too late. Too yeah. slow, too late, but yeah. also sometimes a failure to understand and recognize the dangers, recognize either the dominance or the dangers that that dominance presented, mm -hmm. particularly when dominant 
firms go into adjacent areas and yeah. begin colonizing something that's very attractive, but they use their dominance in one space to, to, to move into an adjacent space. Um, and I think you can see that in, 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 in certain of the large platform businesses that have colonized spaces that are attractive to them and that's damaged our businesses. Um, I am hesitant though about taking something like the DMA, which is appropriate in, in a particular market, and maybe it's appropriate in Europe. I've seen arguments on both sides as to whether ex-ante regulation is required or not. I, I'm not going to get into that debate, but what I, I do feel strongly about is that you can't simply take a model that's been designed in a particular context and drop it somewhere else. So what's, what's what may work in Europe and what may be appropriate in Europe is almost certainly not appropriate in, in India, for example, or in Brazil that you may need something entirely different if you decide to go the ex-ante yeah. regulation route. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective because the other, the other side of that argument, yeah. but it may apply more to uh, firms that are, have a, mm. are operating globally with one mm. business model, is that if they're subject to ex-ante regulation that is different in different geographies, yes. the, the, their kind of original secret sauce, which was the <laughs> simplicity and beauty of a single yeah. business model you can roll out across the world, that begins to be undermined by the need to customize it in different ways in different places. I, you, I, you have I, that I, as the I, other I do, but I mean, our, our model is, is not stamping yeah. something out across the world. Our model is investing behind local entrepreneurs, building, empowering local entrepreneurs, building businesses that, that have a local uh, character to them. Um, so the, the, the businesses that have been built, whether it's Emag in Romania or yeah. iFood in Brazil, are businesses built by entrepreneurs from those countries. Yeah. So. so I think from what you've just said, you, competition, poli po competition policy isn't just a challenge for you. It's something that in some instances can be something you use to protect your portfolio companies against anti-competitive conduct and make sure they're on a level playing field. I think I think it can. I, I, the, the difficulty with Admiral relying on that is what we discussed earlier. Where it can be too late mm -hmm. and it can take too long, um, uh, and that that means that it's 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 not something. I think you, in order to succeed, succeed you fundamentally have to outperform your competitor. Yeah. That is the abs That's the assumption that that I'm working on. Where that's challenged is where you have a dominant player that is abusing that position. Yeah. I think uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think r relying on competition policy perhaps is a bit of a last resort yes. after commercial yes. <laughs> means have, have all failed. Yes. Um, so merger control um, has been a big topic today. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned earlier that you do a lot of M&A um, as a business. Mm -hmm. um, what's your view, and we've heard also earlier today just about the fact that merger control is perhaps becoming less predictable Yes. And that's because it's being applied in digital markets that are faster moving. Um, yes. So there's um, uh, the, the, the dynamics have to be factored in, and also that the authorities are kind of lowering intervention thresholds. And you add all yes. of that together, it, it, it's, it's a bit less predictable what what mergers will be allowed or not allowed. Um, what, what's your experience of merger regime predictability? Um, and do you have other observations about whether you think the merger regime is kind of meeting your commercial I needs? I think, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm not going to say anything to you that you won't, you won't expect me to say on that. Shorter time periods would, would be good and, and, and greater predictability. Yeah. I think the, the danger comes where merger authorities are empowered to consider things that are not strictly necessary to protect competition, yeah. but they're either addressing tax issues or societal transformation issues 
that complicates the decision making and makes it much, much less predictable. Yeah. And that, that's problematic, particularly in markets that are developing so fast. Um, you know, taking more than a year to make a decision massively complicates a merger transaction because some of the synergies that you, you might have expected to see and some, indeed some of the rationale for doing yeah. the transaction may fall away over that period because things happen so fast and competitors emerge so, so quickly. Yeah. Um, I think if I understand correctly, you, mm -hmm. because of the way your portfolio operates with mm -hmm. these kind of na national level businesses and different yeah. product markets, maybe you don't have too many overlap mergers as you as you sort of intake or uh, make new investments acquire new businesses into the portfolio we've had we've had some mm -hmm. um, and and those those generally we, we've been we've been happy with the outcomes of those yeah. in, the, in the authorities they were in front of yeah. um, and what about on the other side uh, divesting mm -hmm. these businesses because there you could have a greater merger control issue if if, if, if for, for any reason you're exiting a business and the the acquirer is Yes. either active in that market or they're a, even a potential entrant into that market and the authorities worried about a loss of potential we competition. Absolutely, we do see that. We yeah. do see that and that, that complicates those divestiture transactions and particularly when it's multi-jurisdictional and we've, we've talked about that earlier today um, in the session that we had about the complexity of managing multiple merger processes where different authorities can take different positions on very similar sorts of issues and that mm -hmm. massively complicates the transaction and adds time expense. Okay. Uh, if, if we turn away from mergers onto uh, behavioral issues, um, mm. uh, can you just give us some texture around how, how, how you deal with kind of compliance issues? I think f from having spoken to you yeah. earlier, my understanding is that quite a few of your portfolio companies uh, might have initially been insurgent companies, entrants, startups, um, but then they acquire sort of strong market, r relatively strong market positions, and some of them are characterized, as we said earlier, by being two-sided mm. uh, markets, platforms, et cetera. H how, what are the kind of compliance challenges that you face on the journey from, <laughs> uh, from a kind of startup scenario to a firm that has established a significant market share? Yeah, it's, 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 an ex it's an extremely good question. It's something we grapple with because you don't want to stifle the innovation or the idea that is, that is growing. But at some point, as that business grows, you need to put guardrails around it and begin mm -hmm. to ensure that, that competition compliance is something that the firm considers as it grows and that it becomes increasingly important as it, uh, as it, it takes a larger position in, in the, in the um, environment in which it operates. But it's not only you know, competition compliance. I think you, you see that in other areas where firms become more visible and then more is expected of them yep. in the sustainability area um, data privacy used to be in that bucket but i think it's now much more tightly regulated um, and those guardrails maybe taking us back yeah. to to the beginning of the conversation yeah. are, are they are they things that you can develop at kind of group level and roll out across the different businesses and benefit from learnings yes absolutely absolutely i mean we have a, our competition compliance program is part of a broader compliance program and i think you know, you approach that on a, on a risk-based analysis, um, and we generate a lot of the material that the businesses can use, our various portfolio companies can use. We generate that at, at, at the center, and then mm -hmm. that's available for them to use. It's essentially a toolkit that as you grow, you can, you can implement more of the toolkit around your compliance to help your compliance function deal with the challenges that it faces. And we've talked a bit about the uncertainty of mergers. What, what about uncertainty around what the guardrails should be, what is allowed, what's not allowed. <laughs> if we're talking about a food delivery platform, how, how, how much exclusivity should it be allowed to have? Is it allowed to have 
um, yeah. price parity clauses, all these kind of questions. Uh, do, you, do you find that a difficult uh, terrain to navigate, or, or, or on the contrary, is, is it fairly clear, do you think, what the rules are? No, I think it's you navigate that um, business by business within the country in which it operates. Yeah. I think what is helpful is when we share information across the, across the group to see how different authorities are approaching it in different areas. That, that can be very instructive. But uh, it's, it's what may be appropriate in a particular market in Brazil, to use that example, may not be appropriate in India because of the, the nature of the markets in which those businesses operate. Um, and finally, from, yeah. from my side, can, can I, we've been sort of focusing in a purist yeah. way on uh, competition. What is your, given that you're operating all over the world, many different authorities, what's your experience of non-competition objectives, sort of entering into some of these processes, merger control or other things, um, and how does that sort of affect your ability to do commercially what you want to do? I think they, you know, in certain instances, it, it's legislation empowers the competition authority mm -hmm. to consider the, the, these other other issues, other objectives, in addition to protecting competition, and I think one has to one has to navigate that. That's part of the landscape in which you're operating. It it doesn't help to complain about that. One simply has to um, deal with it. Um, and in many instances, there are objectives that we support. Um, you know, climate-based objectives that impact on competition policy. We know we're in a, a, a climate emergency, and but I think from a competition purist perspective, it complicates the picture and. So the objectives may be laudable, but it makes decision making fairly difficult. Um, that said, if it's if it's part of the landscape, we simply have to navigate it. Yeah. Well, David, thank you. I find this really enlightening. I'm very impressed with the number oh. of markets and geographies <laughs> that you are across, and um, it's been very interesting. Thank uh, you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight to chat. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. You listen to an episode of Antitrust Code by Concurrences. If you want to read more about this topic, check the Concurrences website, where you can find all relevant articles. Follow us on Twitter at Competition Loss and join the Concurrences group on LinkedIn to receive updates on our next podcast.